Blog Talk Radio. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. Volume 2. 
Janet Gray, Dr. Janet Gray, Professor of Psychology, Director of Science, Technology, and Society Program at Vassar, and Shannon Fisk, Environmental Attorney from the Nash Natural Resources Defense Council. It's going to be a cage match. So hello, my friends, and welcome to yet another fun, fun, and exciting romp through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show, and a Stupid Cancer welcome to all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Coming at you live from the chemo deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a 13-year young adult pediatric brain cancer survivor. Joining me live in the studio, as always, tonight, our chief cancer anarchist, Jack Bufart. Hello, Jack. What's up, Matthew? How you doing? I am fantastic. Jack. Yeah. It's about time, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're looking well. Thank you very much. You're still ugly. Jack will be monitoring our live, concurrent, interactive chat room. So if you have something to say, well, I might ignore you, he won't. So feel free to uh, nudge him to death as best as you can. Um, and in our live studio audience tonight, it is a pleasure to welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Jacqueline Zalot and her mom, Stacy Zalot. Hi. Oh, you can do better than that. Hello. Okay. Modestly weak, but we'll accept it. And, of course, uh, as always, it is my esteemed pleasure to introduce my official partner in crime here on the Stupid Cancer Show, hailing from the Windy City of Chicago, fellow young adult survivor and author of the acclaimed book, Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s, the lovely, talented, blogtastic, and spectacular Carol Rosenthal. Hello. Matthew. Hello, Carol. Hi, Carol. Hi, Jack. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Have you guys had even close to the kind of amazing weather we've had here in New York? It has been spectacular. It has actually felt like summer, finally, in July. Good. Good for you. Yeah, I should say so. I think it's great. So uh, so what's been on your plate this week? You, you re released a couple of really awesome uh, blog posts. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of excited about this blog post today because there's a very divided comments on it. So I'd love everybody to weigh in on this one. It is the, was cancer a wake-up call question? You know, me personally, I feel like cancer was not a wake-up call for me. It was just kind of a, <laughs> it was like a snooze alarm kind of thing. Um, no, I don't feel, not to say that cancer has not changed my life in some ways, but cancer for me was not like a huge aha moment. I don't feel like it changed a lot of my values in the world. And this came out of a conversation that I was having with Shannon last night, my husband, who you guys are going to be hearing on, uh, as the second guest tonight. I said to him, you know, did, did marrying a chick with cancer change at all your work with the environment? Like, you know, I mean, a lot of the work that he does is, has to do with healthcare impacts, and I was like, you know, so what, what does it mean now that you've got, you know, some chick on your arm with cancer? Does it does it change your commitment? Does it increase your commitment to the environment? And he was like, mm, no, not really. I was like, oh my god, that's, <laughs> that's the way I love this guy. He was kind of already doing what was important to him before I strolled into his life with cancer. So I am really curious about other people's responses to that. It's been very divided on my blog. Some people who are just like, you know doing what I was already doing, loving, loving life prior to cancer, and other people were like, oh, my God, you know, humongous light bulb moment, total wake-up call. So I'm kind of curious, where are you guys at? Yeah, I mean, for me, I, <clears throat> I guess 
I, I get I didn't really see it as a wake up call. I, I still felt honestly I could, maybe it was complete denial, but I felt like I was in control of the whole thing my whole time, even though I wasn't, and I didn't think that it really changed much. And I never really felt that I'm, as many listeners might know, I was diagnosed in college with brain cancer. I was a concert pianist at the time, and my symptoms were I lost the use of my left hand and had to give up my career. They told me never play again. So with that in mind, pun intended, I never really felt like I had a wake-up call because I never really thought, I never really believed them that this was the end of my music career, and I was not going to let this own me, and I was more angry at it and more out. How dare this get in my way? This is crimping my agenda. Then, oh my God, I've been abusing myself. I never smoked. I never drank. I never did any drugs. I played it safe. I was a band geek. I really had no regrets as a 21-year-old as a, as a to look back on and say, wow, I need to start smelling the flowers. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's, it depends on your circumstance, your personality, the yeah. age at which you're diagnosed. I really didn't have a wake-up call maybe until like, I started I2Y when I realized that there was more I could do with what happened to me mm-hmm. than what I needed to do for myself. So it's never too late to have a wake-up call is what you're saying. I would say that, Jack. I concur. I, uh, I, I, I feel the same way you did, Matt. Like when I was in treatment, I was like, okay, I just have to get through this. It totally sucks, but there's a, you know, a, a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, metaphorically speaking, because... Uh, you know, there's 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 a lot of stuff going on, but you know, I I I was pretty content with my treatment and just knowing that I I, I just had to get through it, um, which I was very fortunate uh, in that way. But um, I think the wake up call pretty much came later when I realized that you know not everybody had you know had the same experience that I have, and a lot a lot of people have it tougher than I did, and that's why I fight why I, the the fight that I'm in. I mean, Carol, do you think that, it, I mean, if, if you're like a chain smoker or you work 80 hours a week or you, you don't see your kids enough, maybe those life circumstances might give you pause to reevaluate what's really important because if all you got is yourself, like I, at least what I, like I did, I didn't have anything to lose at this point. I got my life, of course, but at the, at the same time, I didn't feel like I had anything to be woken up from because I was still just as motivated and passionate and directed and cancer just made me that much more angry that shit was getting in my way. Yeah, I agree. And then I've got these like fantastic comments. Like this one guy on my blog said, you know, I was gay and in the closet, and it wasn't until I got cancer that I realized, what the hell am I doing? Like my life is really precious, and I've got to start being myself. And I was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> I totally see your point, dude. Um, yeah, it's just really, to me, it's, it's not so much about, you know, was cancer a wake-up call or not, but it's very interesting to me to learn about people's personal stories about, like, what was their life like before cancer, and and did they feel like they needed a big change or not? Well, uh, so can you give me a few more? I'm just curious to see. What were the ages of the people who said they had, like, this cathartic re, re-envisioning of their lives? And, and um, what I'd be really curious if we could do, like, it's impossible, like a national study to see how many people are predisposed to having the gestalt moment that really reboots their priorities and how many people are just like, all right, well, whatever, I'm going to get through this and that's that. Well, you know, this is by no means a, you know, large uh, quantitative study, but when I was traveling throughout the country and interviewing young adults for my book, Everything Changes, I did find that 
you know, it was very mixed. It was like very 50-50. I mean, there were some people who I talked to who were like, this wasn't a wake-up call for me. Like, my life was doing just fine, and I would have been doing just fine were this cancer thing not there. And I talked to other people who said, if I could choose to do it over again, if I had control and could do the life choices over again, I would make cancer a choice, and I would choose to get it because of the ways it has woken me up and made me realize the things in life that I need to appreciate. So, and those are young adults, you know, on both sides of the fence. I mean, I guess, I, I, you know, from a certain perspective, yeah, I get less upset about certain things given, like, maybe it's the distance of time or maybe it's just some sort of perception issue. Like, yeah, I love to get angry when I have to call my credit card company. It's like the worst thing in the world to have to deal with them. I've witnessed you make that call several times. Yeah, Jack has bared witness to me totally losing my shit on the call with MasterCard because they're just a bunch of incompetent morons. And I know they're going in there, but it's almost more fun to get angry about it. But at the same time, I'm aware, you know what, I, it, it, it's not like I smell the flowers and walk around all rosy all day like Homer Simpson in Chocolate Dreamland from that episode of The Simpsons. Mm, yes, chocolate. When he takes the bite of the dog and the lamppost. In any yeah. case, <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm completely aware that there are more important things out there and I, I should prioritize different things differently. I wouldn't say that, you know, it, it, it was a, a life-altering gestalt moment in terms of my, my being me, if that makes any sense. It does, and I think for some people it is, and, and others not, not so much, though. I think that it's often, I think often what we see is the life-changing gestalt thing because that's what makes the television specials and that's what makes the Hallmark cards, and, you know, that's, that's what sells. But there's another side to the story, too. Well, there you go. There we go. So, yeah, that's what I've been thinking about these days, today. As a matter of fact, that's been my day-to-day, thinking and talking to people about that. All right. Well, I saw another blog post you had up there. I, I've been trying to keep, try, I keep trying to retweet everything that you, you post up there because everything is just – and you're getting so many comments on, on your, your post these days. It's really impressive. Yeah, it's great to have the dialogue opening up, and especially, you know, if any of you guys are out there listening, I want to welcome the lots of new readers in my blog who are young adult patients with diseases other than cancer, and so it's really exciting to be connecting with people with all kinds of other new diseases that I get to learn about. So, yeah, thanks, so, thanks for the tweeting. So where do you get the uh, your, your your material from? Like, what, what makes you, I'm always curious about this because I, I can't, be nearly as prolific, and I'm jealous of that, as you just constantly, uh, you know, keep putting out amazing posts. Where, where do you get your impetus from that? Or is there just a ceaseless cesspool of data to be discussed? Yes, my brain is full of shit, if that's what I <laughs> to say. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is one thing that I think is, okay, case in point, my life prior to cancer, completely overactive, overly creative, overly busy, overly busy brain, Still that way, and even more so because, you know, I'm on these huge amounts of thyroid medication, which makes me hyperthyroid, and I have a very active, you know, everything, active metabolism, active brain, Um, and I can't, you know, for every blog post I crank out, there are five more in my, you know, folder on my computer labeled, you know, blog posts that I'm going to write someday. So, yeah, I just, I don't even have the time to get them all out of my head, so it's, it's, uh, it's good to get out the ones that I do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've been trying to keep a log of the things that I tweet so I could actually bring them up with you on the show, but 
one of the things that I, I did send out today was that uh, apparently cursing helps relieve stress. And Have you ever driven through Manhattan? <laughs> Unless you're in Manhattan. <laughs> then I should be the least stressed out person you've ever met in your life. I have a very, very funny cursing story to tell. I'll try to make it short. When I was in second grade, my family went to Disney World, and we're walking across the parking lot at Disney World, and I was walking ahead of my parents. You know, they're cute little second graders. They're probably like seven years old, and I was marching and singing a little song, and and my dad was like, want to walk up behind my cute little daughter and hear the little nursery rhyme that she's singing, and out of my mouth was coming this like rhyme that I made up that was like a strand of like the most vulgar like I would have made a truck driver blush like these nice. words are just like coming out of my mouth when I was seven so was yeah it, was it bitches and hoes by Snoop Doggy Dog <laughs> oh wait no you said you were seven never mind so uh yeah yeah I'm a huge I'm a huge swearer somebody reposted my blog today on care pages a blogger on care pages and she was just like warning everybody. This, you know, language is very harsh and offensive. And I think I said kicking ass. I was like, honey, honey, you don't know the you don't know the capacity for crap that can come right. out of my mouth. So, but it was actually it was on um, Sanjay Gupta's website that it was posted on that that cursing and swearing is a good outlet and it decreases stress and it improves quality of life. And I just think that it was so hysterical having it come from from like. A doctor on a public website like that. Way to go, Sanjay. I know. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, I got my mom swearing when I was going through treatment. She's. Are we allowed? Can we say anything we want on this show? What's the yeah, swearing? Yeah, whatever you want. Okay. Were you not listening to the sex show a couple weeks ago? <laughs> <laughs> so my mom started calling me her motherfucking daughter, like in jest, because everything out of my mouth when I was like right when I was leading up to treatment was going through like these horrific symptoms, everything out of my mouth was like total MF this, MF that. So my mom starts calling me her motherfucking daughter, which I thought was hilarious because my mom's just like such a nice, polite woman. So cancer drives even the nicest people to swear. Well, there you go. Well, on that note, let's get uh, let's get Jack going with the news here so we can cut over. Speaking of motherfuckers. Speaking of motherfuckers. All right. Uh, where is the news queue? Here we go. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Okay, during this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we announce worthy news stories to our adoring listeners to inform them about the latest and greatest in young adult programs, services, events, projects, and other stuff. If you have a... An upcoming young adult program, event, service, product, or press release that you'd like to hear broadcast during this segment, please fax it to us at 646-861-2565 or email Jack Buffard at jack at i2y.com. Take it away, Jack. Thank you, Matthew. And here's your stupid cancer news. We have a couple upcoming events, so head on over to events.i2y.com. On events.i2y.com, you will see that Tuesday, July 21st, from 6.30 to 10 at the Bean and Barrel in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, is a Stupid Cancer Happy Hour. Bean and Barrel on Governor's Drive in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Tuesday the 21st, from 6.30 to 10. For the New York Metro chapter, we have a Stupid Cancer Happy Hour on Wednesday, July 22nd, from 7 to 10 at the Mercury Bar on 9th Avenue and 46th. 
Supercanto Happy Hours are always cover charge free, and friends, family, spouses, mates are all welcome. And moms. Moms are welcome, too. Yes, they are. Moms are always welcome. we got a waving mom saying, don't forget the mom. That's a new uh, news article, Matthew. We, we, I just received a message from our friends over at Planet Cancer, and Planet Cancer wants us to wants everyone to join them. Planet Cancer retreats are getting close, and they want to remind you to sign up ASAP. Planet Cancer retreats are a unique weekend experience bringing young adults together for recreation, relaxation, and sharing. The 25- to 40-year-old retreat is August 21st through the 23rd in Austin, Texas, and the 18- to 25-year-old retreat is October 23rd through the 25th in Boston, Massachusetts. Planet Cancer retreats are free of charge, open to anyone who has ever had or has cancer, and you only have to participate as much as you want to. This weekend is for you. Applications and more information can be found on the retreat page at www.planetcancer.org. Attention young adult thyroid cancer patients. Tune into the Group Room radio show for a special episode on thyroid cancer and young adults. On Sunday, July 19th from 4 to 6 p.m., guests on the show will be Dr. Michael Tuttle from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and Carol Rosenthal, our stupid cancer co-host and the author of Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s. Learn more about how to call into the show with questions and how to download a podcast of the show by visiting www.vitaloptions.org. And check out the Group Room Radio Show on vitaloptions.org. The 2009 Cancer Fighter Awards are going on right now, and Great Nonprofits is running a campaign during July to identify the top-rated nonprofits across the country serving the cancer community. If you have a personal experience as a volunteer, client, or donor for a cancer organization, post reviews and stories on greatnonprofits.org. The nonprofits that get the most positive reviews during July will win the contest. Plus, individuals who post reviews also have a chance to win prizes, such as a copy of Everything Changes, the Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s, by our very own Stupid Cancer co-host, Carol Rosenthal. Organic Valley Milk for a Year, Spa Packages from Osmosis Day Spa and Kabuki Springs and Spa, Delicious Baked Goods from Dancing Deer Baking Company, and more. So head on over to greatnonprofits.org. Or you can also, if you want to leave a, uh, a comment on I2Y, you can go to vote.i2y.com, and that will direct you to the I2Y page. So, again, vote.i2y.com. And, Matthew, I believe that I2Y is in the lead for that contest right now? We are currently in the lead, yes, by about 15 votes. Awesome. So, yeah, head on over to vote.i2y.com. Cancerreallysucks.org is a teen website sponsored by the nonprofit organization Gems of Hope Incorporated. With a mission of bringing hope to cancer patients and their families, www.cancerreallysucks.org was designed by Teens for Teens. This site offers strategies on how to deal with a cancer diagnosis in the family and much more. An open chat line is held on the first and third Wednesday of the month from 10 to 11 Eastern Standard Time. So check it out at cancerreallysucks.org. Matt, I hate to break it to you, but I won't be here for next week's show because I'm going to First Descent. I think I need to pause this and... Uh Give like a round of applause there. Oh, right. I thought you needed a moment of silence. <clears throat> no, Jack's not going to be here next week. Okay, back to the news. Does that make next week the Jack's Off show? Oh, oh God. never mind. Oh, no. Oh, no. Like I said, I will be at First Ascent, and that First Ascent that I will be participating in is in White Salmon, Washington. Upcoming First Ascents are Vail, Colorado from July 21st through the 30th and July 31st through the 6th. They will be in Garden Valley, Idaho, 
from August 14th through the 20th, and in Jackson, Wyoming, from August 30th through the 4th, September 4th. So head on over to firstdescent.org and check in here two weeks from now, and I will give you a full report, provided that I'm not upside down in a kayak drowning in the Columbia River. Moving on to Camp Make a Dream. Camp Make a Dream offers retreats throughout the year, from everything from ovarian cancer to young adult survivors to young adults in treatment to teen camps, kids camps, siblings camps, and the Heads Up Conference. You can find out everything you need to know about Camp Make a Dream at www.campdream.org. Everything changes. The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s is the newly released book. But that's so new. I've been reading this for a few months now. Yeah, I think we had to change that one there, huh? Yeah, I'm, probably, I'm just going to start reading it all together because everybody must have it by now. I know I yeah, do. Yeah, just cross it off the list. We've, it's, it's been in here like two or three times, you know, just, yeah. It's actually the, the I'm, best. I'm like dominating it. I love it. It's such a good book. As right, I said you. before, it's been written, it's uh, authored by our stupid cancer co-host, Carol Rosenthal. Everything changes, thus the sugar coating off of the young adult cancer experience. It is packed, packed with gripping stories and an unprecedented collection of an of Young Adult Cancer Resources. Everything Changes is available wherever books are sold, and you can visit the book's website, everythingchangesbook.com. Next up, we have 70k.org. That's the word 70, the letter K.org. There are approximately 70,000 people aged 15 to 39 diagnosed with cancer every year. For over two decades, there has been little or no improvement in survival for this age group. By signing this bill, you are supporting the Adolescent and Young Adult Cancer Bill of Rights to be established as a standard for care to meet the needs of this underserved population. Moving on to cancer care programs. The young adult groups that are active and running at cancer care are as follows. Living with cancer for those in active treatment. Life after cancer for those post-treatment. Young adults loss of a parent. Young women with breast cancer. Young adult individual grief, grief counseling and young adult caregiver for all diagnoses and relationships. Contact I2Y friend Julie Larson at jlarson at cancercare.org. That's J-L-A-R-S-O-N at cancercare.org. Or you can reach Julie by phone at area code 212-712-6173. And finally, we have Live On, sperm banking by mail for cancer patients. Trust me, guys, do not do what I did. Little did I know, but mailing sperm without a live-on kit is frowned on by our federal government. For more information on sperm banking by mail, please go to www.liveonkit.com. Live sperm banking by mail is made possible by our great friends over at Fertile Hope. And I would personally like to send a big thank you to the law firm of Dewey, Scroom and Howe for clearing up my embarrassing situation with the United States Postal Service. And that, my friends, is your Stupid Cancer News. All right. All right, well, without any further ado. All righty. In our Survivor Spotlight tonight, my first guest, Jamie Reno, an award-winning Newsweek journalist, author, singer-songwriter, cancer survivor, and patient advocate. In 2000, he released Hope Begins in the Dark, an inspirational informative book in which he profiles 50 courageous lymphoma cancer survivors, including celebrities who've never spoken publicly about their cancer. Later this year, Jamie releases Snow on the Pigeon's Mound, a poignant novel about a 10-year-old boy whose mother is diagnosed with cancer. The book, written from the child's perspective, is part of the Pitcher's Mound Project, a national program for kids and their families touched by cancer. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, my friend and yours, the one and only Jamie Reno. Jamie. Matt, how are you? Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show. 
great to be here, guys. Welcome. What a show. We are very excited to have you, and I know we have a lot to talk about, but my agenda here is to have everyone listen to your song first. Well, that's uh, twist my arm, Matt. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about what it was like to get diagnosed with lymphoma as a young adult, your, your short, quick story, and sure. uh, how your music evolved, and then this, this wonderful song that you wrote that you were very generous in giving to us for this project. Well, I, was, I was proud to give it to you, Matt. I love this project. Um, well, I was diagnosed at age 35 with stage 4, not Hodgkin's lymphoma. You know, at the time I was, you know, writing for Newsweek and engaged to be married, living on the beach in San Diego, thinking I had the world by the tail. And one day, I, you know, and I know every, every cancer patient and survivor has heard these kind of stories, but one day I had a lump, felt a lump on my neck, and next thing I knew, I was, you know, I was going through chemo. I was puking my guts out, thinking, am I going to live? Am I going to die? And when I got better, actually, I, my chemo gave me remission for about two years. And then I did a clinical trial of radiominotherapy drug, um, which is an amazing, remarkable uh, treatment that not many folks know about still, even though this was uh, almost 13 years ago. Um, I'm sorry, 10 years ago when I did my trial. Anyway, after I did that trial and I, I went back into remission and my, daughter, my beautiful daughter was born, uh, I know this is a real tearjerker, but it's, it's all true. I, I, I was very inspired by all this, and I went to my guitar, which I often do when I'm feeling inspired. And, you know, I've always been a, I've always been a musician, but I kind of took it to another level after I got cancer, and I just started writing songs, just kind of one after the other came out of me. And, you know, at first I said, you know what, I'm going to record these just, just for fun, just for posterity's sake. And one thing kind of led to the other. And by the, by the time it all kind of, you know, I mean, the, the, the ultimate, I mean, actually the upshot is I actually got a national record deal. And all my, all my cancer, all my music projects have been attached to, uh, you know, cancer awareness. I want to, you know, I've become sort of a patient advocate it never really was my goal, but I'm actually proud to be one. I'd, I'd like to talk to cancer patients and their families about, you know, how to, how to fight, how, you know, how to become your own best advocate, how to, you know, fight for your rights and fight for your life. And that's kind of where my music comes from. It's, it's pretty positive. I try, I try to make it not too sugar-coated, not too sappy, but it is definitely a life-affirming, life-celebrating music. And what, one of the things I do, Matt, as you know, is I like to recruit my own musical heroes to play in my songs. And I've recruited a whole bunch of people we all know to play in my records, which has been a big thrill for me. Everybody from members of Chicago and the Eagles to Peter Frampton and Charlie Daniels and Dickie Betts from the Allman Brothers. Um, people, like, you know, people that I grew up listening to. So it's been, you know, it's been, obviously cancer sucks, but it's been an amazing uh the, the positive side is it kind of lit a fire under me to pursue some of the things in my life that I may not have pursued. One of the there we music. go, the wake-up call, just what we were totally. talking about. So you totally. would fall into the wake-up call category. It really is. Oprah I mean, calls those aha moments. <laughs> well, and, uh, well, I'm excited to hear your music. You know, I've talked to you. I'm familiar with your writing, but I have not heard your song, so, uh, any of your songs. So let's play one. I'm really excited to hear your okay. music. Cool. Thanks, All right, guys. so this is a, a song called Favorite One, Oh, George. You know what, Matt? I wrote this song the night George Harrison died of cancer, as we, as we all know. I was a huge Beatles fan, am a huge Beatles fan. Um, and that's not, you know, I, I have a lot, lot of company in that. But I, 
I actually grew up, my very first memory of life is watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. So I just kind of, my whole life has been, you know, sort of inextricably linked with the Beatles. And for whatever reason, maybe because I was the youngest in my family, I love Paul, I love John, I love George, I loved uh, Ringo, but George was my favorite. He, he, he struck a chord with me somehow. And when he died, it really, it kind of moved me. And my wife and I sat in my room and listened to George Harrison songs all night. And I came up with this song as a tribute. All right, well, here we go.
Bravo. So, Jamie, we are uh, we're almost out of time for your your spotlight because we're getting to our, our guest Janet Gray in just a moment. But I just want to say you are the true Renaissance man because Thank here you, you are. <laughs> Singing, songwriting, and also creating journalistic pieces that are incredible, as well as a great new novel that's coming out. And I'm wondering if you can just tell our listeners real quickly about the name of it and sure. the point that you're driving home. Thanks, Carol. It's called actually it's called The Snowman on the Pitcher's Mound, and it's a it's a book for kids and their parents. It's about a 10 year old boy whose mother is diagnosed with lymphoma cancer, and it's in, written in his voice. And it's all the things that the boy goes through, the fear, the anger, the confusion. Uh, and it's a part of a Pitcher's Mound project, which we're doing to help kids and their families cope when a parent is diagnosed with cancer. And the, actually, in, interestingly, the, one, the woman in the book, the mom in the book, uh, chooses to do radio therapy, which is what I chose to do, uh, which, which saved my life. Obviously, I'm not, I'm not out there selling any drug, but I do want cancer patients to be informed. I want them to be aware of all their options, and radiomenotherapy is the best treatment for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but not many people are aware of it, and it, it really kind of pisses me off, to be honest with you. I really want to spread the word and let patients know that you know, this, this treatment is out there. It's available for them. So clearly this means that not only are we having you on next season when we talk about the Being a Parent with Cancer show, but I think we need to have a whole lymphoma special along I would love that. to because, yeah. you know, Carol, I really believe this, uh, this treatment is it's saving lives, and yet for political reasons and reasons that have nothing to do with its, its uh, effectiveness, it's not being talked about. And there's two. There's Bexar and Zevalin. There, there are two radiomenotherapies. therapies. They're equally good. I'm not a proponent of any drug, but I just want you know I just want patients to be informed. Yeah, and and so great to toss out that info so people can do their own research and learn more. And yeah, absolutely. thank you so much for being on the show tonight. We're excited to have you back next season, and thrilled that you have a new book coming out for people to learn better about how to talk to their kids about cancer. What what could be more important? So thank Thanks, you girl. so thank much. Thank you very much. Amy. Appreciate it. Great Thanks, having Jamie. you here. Good to Thanks, see you. Good to talk to you, Matt. Thank you, guys. All right, Jamie Reno, everybody. That it is a good song. I really like that song. All right, where are we going now? We're gonna go to uh, this song here. Okay. Our first guest tonight is Dr. Janet Gray, with a background in behavioral neuroscience, and her lab research is focused on the effects of estrogens and mixed. I'm gonna mess this up. Anti-estrogen, especially tamoxifen, on brain activity and behavior. In recent years, her research and writing focus has turned toward engaging the public in the complex issues surrounding breast cancer and environmental risks. She is a um, there's a lot of stuff here. Multidisciplinary group of students and professionals in the development of widely distributed. All right, she's going to go over the stuff. My brain is melting. She's the editor of the fifth edition of the Breast Cancer Fund's State of the Evidence, the connection between breast cancer and the environment. Here to tear a new one into the pie hole of the environment is Dr. Janet Gray. Hey, Matt. How are you? Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Now, Carol and I have been discussing this for a long time. We we are not Kool-Aid drinking conspiracy theorists per se, but we are we are of the ilk that there's something bigger than what's going on and no one's talking about it and there's a whole possible like, you know, bunker where Dick Cheney lives where there's people talking <laughs> about it. 
And, uh, you know, I've been into the environmental ecology movement for quite a while now uh, through Deborah Davis at UPMC. I'm a huge fan of this conversation, and I'm going to turn it over to Carol because I know there's just so much that can be talked about right now. Great. Hi, Carol. Hi. Great to have you on the show tonight. And so I'm just going to dive right in. You know, I'm so impressed by reading the State of the Evidence Report, and I hope that we can get a link up to it in, in the chat room so that folks can check it out, too, because talking to cancer patients, you know, there's, there's so much Mm, so many question marks, and we all have, are wondering what the relationship is, and it's so important to have some real evidence-based information out there, and that report is so great. And so I want to ask you a couple questions just based on, on my reading of the report, and I'm curious if you can talk about cancer incidence rates in the environment. You know, I hear so many people say, well, Incidence rates are going up because we have better detection methods, and, right. I, and you know, and and I think that sometimes there's a question about what's the relationship between incidence and cancer rates, and potential environmental factors versus just better early detection and monitoring, and how those relate to each other. Sure, that's really a great question, um, and of course it's very complicated, and that's what the answer to all the questions are. Is the first thing is it's really complicated, but I think the data really show that, um, yes, detection has been really important in our new detection methods in finding cancers that might have been missed, but that they just really, that doesn't account for it all, and that um, the increased incidence of a number of different cancers, including um, breast and other um, endocrine cancers certainly has been rising faster than you can account for with, you know, mammography and other detection kinds of uh, tools. Um, of course, it's really impossible to, to link a single person and say this was caused by uh, the environment and this was caused by something else. So it's, you know, these global statistical kinds of Response. Yeah, you know, and when you say it's impossible to link, you know, one person to the direct cause, I hear so many cancer patients that are so concerned about wanting to find the cause of their cancer. And sure. the way that I talk about it is, I mean, of course we do. It's sort of an insidious question. And at the same time, it's, it's more studying the environment as a whole and looking at what we are doing, what we can change in the future that we might not ever be able to go back and pinpoint what happened to us specifically, but to look at this as a larger population study. And one thing that people really want to know, I think, about this is, is there something that they can be doing in their lives to reduce their risk of getting a second form of cancer if they're cancer patients already? And so in response to that, I'm curious about how far out the impacts are seen of when the environment is potentially linked to the cause of cancer. How far out is the, different, the, the time span between exposure and the actual detection of cancer? And ultimately, are there things that we can do now to make a difference in our lifetime, or am I screwed because of what might have happened to me when I was in my mom's <laughs> womb? You know? <laughs> Yes, yeah, so you have about 20 questions there. Sure, um, sure. <laughs> that, <laughs> which is, whatever. <laughs> no, no, that, which is try great. So, um, huh? So it's fine living um, Yeah, <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, so, so obviously, um, or 
very rarely will a single exposure cause cancer, you know, within five days. It's not like you're exposed to a virus and you know that that's the cause and here you have the disease a week or two weeks later. And so um, the answer to the question is is a little bit difficult, but at least for for young people with cancer, again, using the example of breast cancer, at least one example of um, a fairly um, straightforward set of data is that uh, taking oral contraceptives may um, increase the likelihood. So this is at a you know, big population level, not necessarily one-on-one, um, of getting cancer within the next five years. So that's a fairly short-term effect. Um, on the other hand, um, we're, we're learning increasingly that exposures very early in life, perhaps even in the uterus, may increase the sensitivity of um, people to uh, other environmental factors later on in life. So it may be that there's this combination of sort of early exposures and then later exposures that um, may prime the system towards being more sensitive to carcinogens and then actual exposures to carcinogens that kind of push the system over. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. don't know if that really gets yeah. it, but it's, it's, you know, the series of different kinds of exposures. And I do want to add the right away that the reason I'm in this business is because I am entirely optimistic that actually we can do a lot and affect change. So even as I'm saying, you know, multiple exposures and we need to worry, um, I really think that there are things we can do. You know, that was my next question for you. It's based on a short quote that I want to read from my book, Everything Changes, because I interviewed this incredible guy, Richard Acker, who was a stage four colon cancer patient, and he's also an environmental attorney. And so he had an interesting inside knowledge of, about his own disease. And he said, uh, he was talking about how the average American has 100 to 200 synthetic chemicals in our bloodstream, mm-hmm. all of us. Mm-hmm. And he said, you do the math. If you have 100 to 200 chemicals, in order to research the potential effects of the combination of each of those, it's such a large-scale project. How do you get statistically significant results? How can you do that? that it would just be so extremely difficult because it's not necessarily any one um, carcinogen in your body, but the synergy and the, and the combination of multiple multiple chemicals interacting. And because the puzzle seems so complex to me, and I really appreciate when you said that these aren't simple answers because it's, it's not a simple question or a simple problem that we're facing here. Right. How do we take on where to go from here with research strategies if that's true, that mm-hmm. we're looking at this sort of infinite complexity <laughs> of equation? Well, that, that's just a really really key, key question, and um, I guess one approach would be to throw up your hands and say you can't do it, and I hope that's not the approach we we take. There are um, folks who are um, looking at different kinds of mixtures and looking at, for example, mixtures of um, the class of chemicals that a lot of folks who deal with um, endocrine cancers like um, thyroid cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, um, and other reproductive cancers, uh, chemicals called endocrine disruptors that actually can uh, muck up the system, increase the likelihood that uh, cells will proliferate too much and will stay in the the phase of cell division that makes them most sensitive to actually become um, 
to have a mutation occur or other kinds of cancer-causing changes to happen. And so they're, they're looking at small doses, doses that are so low that each by itself don't appear to have any effect on the cell's activity. Um, and when you add a couple of those together or 10 of those together, often they are additive um, and can increase the likelihood of a cell's response. And sometimes they actually cancel each other out. So doing those kinds of mixture studies that reflect realistically how we might be exposed is really important, but really hard. So when you said this, you know, there are folks who are researching this. Talk a little bit about the research climate around um, cancer and, and the environment. I, I, I hope we're headed in the right direction. I recall seeing not too long ago that there was uh, something passed in Congress about more research funding for breast cancer and the environment and the leaks between the two. Mm-hmm. But, you know, who's doing this research now, and, and what's the status of, of that climate? Yeah. We, well, can I, just a well, quick question here. Uh, we have a question from the chat room, and normally we okay. ignore them because everyone in there, we don't care about them. They ignore me, too, so they, yeah. it's good. <clears throat> but the, this, this, is, this sort of ties into these, these influences that we're talking about. It's part myth. It's part you know, sort of urban legend stuff. But the notion of plastic and how we mm-hmm. microwave our food in it and how we use, mm-hmm. reuse water bottles and that number yep. one waters and BPH and all that stuff, is there something to that? Um, or is there is it is it a conspiracy, or do we believe what the skeptics say, or do we where where is what is the position within this research? Are they exploring those types of of scenarios and bi- biologic indicators? Absolutely. So I think actually the the research on plastics um, and components within plastics, in particular phthalates, which um, P-H-T-H-A-L-A-T-E-S, one of the kind of weirder chemical names, um, and a a compound called bisphenol A. Uh, Loads of people may have noticed that if you go get your sports bottle in the last year, it says BPA-free very proudly on many of the bottles now. Um, The research on these two classes of plastic components is really strong, strong enough that Congress took the unusual um, action in August um, to actually ban uh, some of the phthalates from children's toys, um, an act that just went into, um, into effect this past February. There's currently work being done at many state levels and and at the federal level to also try to ban uh, bisphenol A. For me, BPA is one of the the scariest of the chemicals. Um, The research that's being done in all over the country, all over the world, in some of the best uh, endocrinology labs, neurology labs, um, behavioral labs, cancer labs, is showing that fairly very small doses of BPA can cause the kinds of changes that may uh, make a person more susceptible to a wide variety of diseases. So the the science is now really traditional kinds of laboratory research that is now showing uh, the influence of these plastic chemicals. And for uh-huh. people who did not get the spelling of that incredibly long and complicated <laughs> word, yeah. I just I just put up a link to the state of the evidence. Oh, good. Um, 
report that you're talking about. And one thing that I think is so wonderful about it is if, if folks are looking through it and you go a little bit further back to like page 71 and 74 mm-hmm. and 77, you start to see these incredible charts that have been put together where you list these different chemicals and the kind of evidence about their harm, which ones to avoid. Um, some of them are plastics, others are household cleaners, cosmetics products. And I think it's right. so important that you're doing this because often it can be very confusing and very emotional for a cancer patient to be subjected to this kind of like greenwashing. You know, there are a lot of companies Absolutely. out there that are really big on just sort of like playing with our emotions to get to our wallets and yep. to say, yep. you know, here's what you need to do to take care of your health and in the environment and cancer. And it's what I so appreciate about the work that you're doing is that you're able to educate people using real scientific evidence. And I feel like that's what we need to do to cut through enviroparanoia. We use real scientific evidence to research our diseases, and we kind of need to use real scientific evidence to research the relationship to the environment, too. And, you know, I've, I know that this report has been issued in many different editions, and I'm wondering if you can talk about the changes that have happened to it or how the report has evolved over time. Sure. Um, so I was really fortunate to take over the editorship um, for this edition, Nancy Evans um, had done the first four editions and just did a phenomenal job of pulling together the evidence as it was um, aggregating over the uh, early from 2000 on. There's so much more science in the last couple of years. It's just a field that's absolutely exploding. And so in the most recent edition, we really wanted to highlight the most recent data and also to pick up on a couple of what we think were the most important themes that have come out in the last couple of years, um, as I suggested, that very early exposures may be actually more important than adult exposures. Not that adult exposures don't matter, but that the early exposures may sort of be setting some of the context by which later exposures uh, happen. That mixtures are also important um, and that uh, we we need to think about the complexity. So there's this diagram of this weird web where there are all these arrows pointing between all the it's different substances. Mind-boggling. I thought it kind of blew my brain away. <laughs> yeah. And 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 for me. For me, I find that actually both mind-boggling but also reassuring so that as um, as we try to remove, so it's a, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's kind of a web with arrows of all these different factors that may influence breast cancer and how they all influence one another. But you can remove an arrow by uh, making illegal, um, say, BPA exposures prenatally and early in life. Or you can decrease breast cancer incidence by um, limiting the amount of hormone replacement therapy or by getting rid of pesticides. So you can actually start to pull some of those arrows away and then all of a sudden it's not so overwhelming. So that's a, a you know a great segue into our next guest and I really thank you so much for for being on here tonight and and I hope that we can have you back again because uh like I said evidence is is what it's all about and kind of taking away the fear and the whole environmental paranoia e- equation. So we really Great. Well, thank you so much for having me and I look forward to hearing the next guest. Absolutely. And so segueing into that, you know, one thing that I think is so important about the report that was written is that they don't only talk about the scary stuff, but there's a bit of the what can you do about it, too. And so they list different organizations that are working on 
issues. You know, Janet was just talking about, you know, passing legislation to ban different kinds of chemicals, and these are all legal, political, legislative issues. One of the organizations that they listed um, in working with reducing air pollution is NRDC, so it's great to have Shannon talking about that with us tonight if we want to bring him on. Okay, so uh, Dr. Uh, Janet Gray, thank you very much for being on our show. Thank you. Okay, good night. Janet Gray, everybody. Good night. Okay. Well, I didn't get to use this on Yosef, but somebody's going to get it, so here we go. Okay. Our second guest tonight is not only Carol's husband, but is a staff attorney for the National Resource Defense Council. He has over 10 years' experience litigating clean air and clean water cases. He spends most of his time fighting the coal industry and dispelling the myth that coal is clean. He is also the spouse of and a caregiver for a young adult cancer patient. Please welcome to the show the not Jewish Shannon Fisk. Hello, Matthew. How are you? Hello, how are you? I have a friend who's an Orthodox Jew, and we always play that music when he comes into the, to the live studio audience. So I had prepared that just for him, and he bailed at the last minute. So I needed some sort of closure just to hear it used in some context. Oh, Shannon can do a kick-ass horror. I mean, he is a total honorary member of the tribe. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Totally fair enough. All right, so point-counterpoint. Yeah. So, hi, sweetie. Hello. Hi, Carol. Oh, sorry. You're talking to your husband. Oh, yeah. Hey, now. So, um, yeah. We, so, we just uh, we heard this really great sort of scientific-based information. Now I want to make the legal connection here. Um, but first, talk a little bit about cancer and air pollution, since so much of what you focus on is air pollution. What's the connection there? Certainly. Uh, well, you know, there, there, as the prior guest said, there's no specific connection between any specific case of cancer and uh, air pollution. But as a general matter, we know that heightened air pollution levels um, lead to a greatly increased risk for cancer and numerous other diseases. Um, so there was a recent study from the US EPA showing that toxic air pollutants, which are wonderful things like benzene and cadmium and asbestos and dioxin, um, leads to heightened risks for cancer throughout the country, and that about 2.2 million Americans are at a greater than 100 in a, in a million risk uh, for cancer uh, just from toxic air pollutants. And then on top of that, there's a whole other set of air pollutants uh, known as particulate matter that also directly contributes to um, lung cancer and other types of cancer. So there's a very clear connection that heightened air pollution leads to heightened cancer risk, and then if we decrease air pollution, we will get significant health gains from that. I remember when that article came out, it was particularly talking about cities, and it made me want to run out and buy a gas mask. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there some connection to cities in, in that article where they were talking well, about Well, there certainly are a number of, you know, many cities do have significant problems with air pollution, um, partially just because of the, the uh, increased amount of traffic that you have in cities and, and the fact that it's a denser area, you have more air pollution coming out for for the number of people that are there. Um, there's also a number of cities that have old, dirty coal-fired power plants that still, uh, they were built 50 years ago and they still haven't in, in installed modern pollution controls in them. Uh, here in Chicago, we have a, a coal-fired power plant that unfortunately is named the Fisk Power Plant. Um, 
that has been operating since about 1956 with no pollution controls on it. So those can contribute to the increased health risks also. So talk a little bit about power plants. I think when we think about conserving energy and where does our energy come from, I don't, in, in my mind, it doesn't, I don't necessarily associate that directly with cancer risk. What's the relationship between our energy use and these potential cancer risks through air pollution? Sure. Well, right now, um, unfortunately, the majority of our power in the United States comes from coal-fired power plants, which are you know, very large facilities that burn approximately 4 million tons of coal every year. Each facility um, or combined? Each, each facility. So there's about 400 or so of them throughout the country, and each one on average burns approximately 4 million tons of coal per year. Uh, and in the burning of that coal, you create all kinds of harmful air pollutants. So things like particulate matter, which really is kind of like soot. Um, you know, if you bite a fire in your fireplace, when the wood is done burning, you get kind of a soot uh, that's in your fireplace, and, and that's basically what is emitted by coal-fired power plants, just in much smaller particles, which lodge deep in your lungs and can um, cause lung cancer and asthma and emphysema and all kinds of other health problems. Um, so these coal-fired power plants that are operating, um, many without anything near adequate pollution controls, uh, create a significant amount of air pollution that, that directly increases risks for cancer. And our increasing energy use um, is directly tied to the number of coal-fired power plants we have, um, unfortunately. So basically the number of people that are sitting on the train with me twittering away on their BlackBerry <laughs> <laughs> is impacting my cancer risk. Um, yes, there, there is a there is a tie there. Um, yes, I, and you know the number of stores that leave their lights on all night, or the number of restaurants that suddenly now have five flat screen TVs in it, even though nobody's watching any of them. All those. And I have a question. I have a question. All right, I'm I'm moving to the middle of nowhere in Montana. Okay, <laughs> I have with me lifesavers, a rubber band, and some matchsticks. What can I get cancer from? <laughs> I'm sure if you burn the matches, the soot, the, the soot from whatever little fire you're going to make. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't yeah. mean to jump in and steal your line. Like pe people like that move to Montana to not get cancer, then they get like killed by a grizzly bear get in the mail. <laughs> right. Exactly. No, I mean the the much better. I'm sorry, that was strangely funny. <laughs> I was like one in a million people. All right. The much better solution is to, you know, help work for the policy changes necessary to clean up our, our energy industry and to reduce environmental hazards in general. So there is, you know, much better ways to produce power than, than coal-fired power, and there are, there are numerous ways that can re we can reduce the public health risks related to energy production and related to um, numerous other parts of our society that can contribute to, to cancer. Well, I'm thrilled that Matt doesn't have to move to Montana because it could be the end of the stupid cancer show. Right. <laughs> but, um, so how how do we do what you just said? How, how what is the how do we how do you you know the business of being an environmental attorney? What is your role in in this in cleaning up these plants or in finding solutions to how energy is used? Sure. Well, my role um, as a lawyer is is 
largely focused on enforcing the federal laws that are designed to uh, reduce pollution, uh, namely the Clean Air Act, which was passed back in 1970 uh, when our air quality was significantly worse than it is today. Um, and that law basically required the installation of pollution controls on numerous types of, of, of polluting sources, coal-fired power plants, steel mills, coke ovens, a wide range of things. Uh, and, and my role is really going to court to enforce those, that law and to make sure that whenever there's a facility being built, it's as clean as it can possibly be. You know, the role for other people is to, to get involved in encouraging your elected officials to support policies that would lead to the implementation of cleaner energy sources, so solar and wind power and energy efficiency. Um, so, so doing that is a huge thing you can do. Volunteering for an organization is a huge thing to do. Um, you can go to our website, nrdc.org, and sign up for our action alerts where you will you know, get notified if there's a big issue going on that we need people to contact elected officials or government agencies and, and push them to do the right thing. So there's numerous ways people can get involved in making the policy changes that we need. Shannon, I have a quick question. It's very scientific. Okay. Um, what are the, uh, are there any long-term studies on the uh, healing effects of an aluminum foil hat? <laughs> <laughs> I think they're enrolling people in clinical trials for that right now. Actually. Yeah, I'm sure That's they good are. Stuff. That's good stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it would help a lot. Matt's actually wearing his tinfoil yarmulke right now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that means I have to start playing this again. <laughs> Okay, sorry. <laughs> so back to the big um, policy word, because I know that policy can sometimes be an ambiguous concept for people, and it sounds like something that, you know, policy is all wonkish, and what we have sure. to do instead is um, what we know how to do. I think most people's response these days to taking direct action to the, you know, help the environment is to do things like putting in CSL light bulbs and making changes in their day-to-day -day life. What's where, where are the crossroads between that? Like the individual actions that we can do with sort of green consumers and policy with a capital P. Sure. Well, the it, you know the individual cho choices are certainly an important thing to do. The the putting in the CFLs and buying a more efficient appliance and. Uh, all those steps are, are very critical, but it's also... Does the guy who has no CFLs in his house because his wife won't let him use them because they're butt ugly? I'm to return all the lights off. <laughs> yeah, so instead um, of CFLs, he walks around the apartment just turning off all of the lights from every room that I'm walking, room to room to room. But, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so instead of that, we're in addition to that... In addition to that, um, you know, your individual action you can take is encouraging your elected officials to do the right thing and to, to support policies that protect the environment. So encouraging your elected officials to support policies that will encourage higher efficiency standards for, you know, for air conditioners and for other electronics and, you know, moving them away from continuing to subsidize the coal industry. Um, Really, that, that is the way that these problems get solved is, is through national policies and state-level policies where, you know, your state legislature or Congress passes a law to address an issue, and then a government agency 
figures out ways to implement that law, and then environmental lawyers like myself enforce that law. And encouraging and, and, and getting elected officials to start that process is, is really the critical thing that, er, that everybody can do. So, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Is that all? Okay. That's it. Well, that's, that's it, it's, as simple as, it's as simple as finding out who your elected official is and making a phone call, writing a letter, you know, something like that, or even writing a letter to to your newspaper, to a letter to the editor, just to, to make your voice be heard and make sure that the people who run the country understand that we want real change that will protect public health. Actually, you know, I, I need to make a point of fact here that I've generally been disenfranchised that, like, you, we don't really I, – I know it has happened in the past and it is possible, but something I was told about the other day convinced me that they are more receptive to listening to us now without nearly as no, – we don't need to be in millions anymore for them to listen and affect change. So I'm not opposed to calling people, but I have to share a really, 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 really quick story. Um, our friend Scott Slater, another musician on the Ice Away Benefits CD, told me this yesterday. There was a guy about a year ago, a musician from Canada, and he went on a United Airlines flight, and they broke his guitar. And his band members watched out the window on the tarmac as the, 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 the people handling the luggage into the plane were literally just tossing and turning it. So after a year of them giving the runaround, he wrote a song called United Breaks Guitars. And it went on to YouTube and got like 2 million people that watched it. It went totally viral. But after 50,000 users... Uh, after 50,000 viewers, United actually called him and gave him his money. So it, it doesn't take that many people anymore, but that it's possible with enough viral social media influence, that is the new way. It's almost like the new letter-writing campaign to create some sort of crazy-ass you know, tinfoil hat video and then get all these people to watch it on YouTube and then send it to the senators. Right. Well, and, 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 and the important thing is when you get the people to watch that video – that at the end you tell them this is what you need to do, you know, right. to make your senator know it. And and you know, frankly, it, you know, a small number of live telephone calls to a congressional office or to a state representative's office gets their attention. I mean, we we you know we often feel like we can't affect change, but it, but we actually can. And through just simple things like making phone calls and sending letters, you actually do get your legislators' attention and can get them to take actions that are important on these issues. And I think we also have really stunning stories to tell because, uh, you know, not only are we voters that have the power to vote these people out of office, but we also have our tear-jerking cancer stories. We're young adult cancer patients, and I think that's really important because I know that when I went to Capitol Hill, people were really kind of like, oh, wow, you've got cancer. You're a real live person with cancer. You're one of my constituents, and this is affecting your life. And so to make that connection between the environment and how it's impacting your life as a young adult cancer patient, I think is a really important story to include. Yep. That's well exactly said. right. <laughs> I shut everyone up. <laughs> Got you're, me the, quiet. you're the anti-Jack before. You shut everyone up. Well, I also think, you know, a really compelling statistic is the one that you um, have told me many times, Shannon, because I love hearing it. I'm like, tell me this story again. Tell me again. The one about, like, how many, like, if everybody in the country went out and started using CFL light bulbs, the good that would do, but how easily that can be negated if we're not working on, you know, the correct right. legislation to limit power plants. Right, yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, replacing 
a couple of your light bulbs at home with the CFL light bulbs, if everybody in the country did that, it would lead to you know a significant amount of savings in energy and reduce the need for you know probably at least a handful of coal-fired power plants. On the flip side of that, even if we got everybody to do that, if there were three to four new coal-fired power plants built, it would entirely wipe out the effect of getting everyone in the country to change a couple light bulbs. Wow. So, you know, it, it, that's why it's really important that we that we convince the people that you know that make the decisions that we really want clean energy sources and not more coal-fired power because that's really where we can get the changes that have a great, you know, nationwide and even global impact. And how many coal-fired power plants that are spewing these carcinogens have been proposed recently, and how many of them are, are being fought and, and won? Well, the, um, there, about two or three years ago, there was approximately 150 being proposed nationwide. Um, Last New plants in, exist, in addition yes. to the ones that already exist. Right. In, existed to the 400, in addition to the 400 that already exist, there was about 150 being proposed. Um, as of last week, the 100th one of them was withdrawn um, due to opposition from, from community groups and environmental organizations and various other reasons. Um, so we're down to about 50 of the 150 that were initially proposed. So that's, uh, you know, it's a pretty significant example of what a concerted effort by a relatively small group of citizens can do. I can't help but think there's an episode of Futurama, and I don't know how many people are inherently as nerdly familiar with it as I am. Nobody. But it takes place in, in the year 3000, and it's just a, just a total satirical take on, on what the future is. But apparently um, in, in the 20th century, in order to clean up the emissions on this planet, everyone made like a giant garbage ball like the size of Greenland and shot it into space. And that was a way to clean up the planet. So a thousand years later, it comes back to Earth and is threatening to kill us like a giant asteroid. So the solution that they do in the future is to create another giant ball of waste. So, but the future is so clean that they have to create the waste to make the ball to shoot back into space to knock the other one out of the way. So that's the problem with we're striving for. Yeah, that's what we're striving for. Exactly. Right, yeah. right. That's why we need to make sure the solutions are not, you know, almost as bad as the problem. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, this has been uh this has been enlightening, frightening, scary and uh and 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 somewhat inspiring. I think that uh well, I mean, let's end on a happy note. Is okay. there change being made now? Well, there is. There is being there is change being made. I mean, you know, one example is the fact that of the 150 proposed coal-fired power plants, 100, 100 of them are gone. Um, there's significant change being made. I mean, there there is a growing push at both the national level and at the state levels for the real clean energy of the future. So for efficiency in wind and solar and geothermal and all these different options that we have that will clean up the environment, provide the power that we need as a society, and also create good, well-paying jobs that you know, lead to economic development for our community. So it really is the future of that, that clean energy future really is coming today, and we just need to actually seize on it and pursue it. And, and we're starting to do that, and we hope you know, as more and more people get involved in pushing for that, that we'll continue to. Well, good stuff. Yeah, I think um, it's it's really interesting to hear Janet and Shannon back to back because while it's so easy to be 
completely freaked out and not want to walk out of our house without wearing a gas mask and never drink anything that comes in a container again, there's evidence and action that's happening right now that, you know, can lead us to making smart choices and not just living with, like, some terrible, terrifying, toxic fear. I'm slightly less depressed than I was five minutes ago. I'm so glad. <laughs> and hopefully you don't move to Montana. Yeah, exactly. No, no, I'm more afraid of grizzly bears than I am of drinking, you know, out of a, a Poland spring bottle for the 14th time. <laughs> okay. Have well, you seen the movie Grizzly Man? No, should I? Oh, my God, you have to watch yeah. it. Okay. You'll never want to move to Is it about a guy who moves to Montana so he doesn't get cancer? <laughs> <laughs> With a tin hat. With a tinfoil hat, perfect. I have a question for the married couple. Are you guys sitting on the same couch sharing a phone and cuddling while we're doing this interview? No, Shannon's at his office. Oh. We were told we couldn't share a phone. Yeah, we were told we couldn't share a phone. I'm just trying to keep them apart so Carol gets more interested in you, Jack. I pictured them with Ooh. the. Uh, I pictured them sitting on one of those like big red couches and with like the lips phone and like. Oh God. You know. <laughs> Love and the Kurt Cameron posters on the wall. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Delilah. <laughs> no, no. Shannon's. You know, this is this is hard work. This coal fire power plant killing, and he's usually at the office till till the, the wee hours of the morning. As a matter of fact, recently for um, his birthday, he got a T-shirt that says "Coal Killer" on it. So he's oh, a no. coal killer. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. a coal killer, and uh, a great you know, shirt. <laughs> yeah, he's slaving away at the office. I'm at home. That's like blue collar ghetto. Can I even say that? I don't know. I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> I was thinking, like, would Mike Rowe consider like environmental lawyer a dirty job? Yeah, right. Mike Rowe, right. Well, All right. Shannon, Shannon did have somebody. Didn't you have someone who said that you should stick your head in the sewer and be thrown in a Chinese prison camp? Yeah, two different people. One told me to be thrown in a Chinese prison camp. Was that that wasn't your mother-in-law, Shannon? Was it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <I'm> think, <laughs> no, definitely Carol, not. Carol, be nice to your husband. <laughs> I think this conversation is run its course. I was just going to say, I could picture Carol's sweet, innocent, you know, nice mom saying, calling Carol a motherfucker and telling her son-in-law to stick his head in a sewer. Right, there we go. Well done. <laughs> my poor mom. We need to have her on as a guest next. Right. You do. Well, all right. Thank you, uh, Shannon. Thank you. Uh, for giving us a, a good a good button to a, a conversation that will definitely be continued that we know our listeners really like to hear about. Great. Thanks a lot for having me. All right. Well, uh, All right. I will see you soon, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care of yourself. All righty. Bye-bye. All righty. That's it. That's our show. Shannon Fisk, everybody. So, uh, I guess so, we'll... so, so he isn't Mr. Rosenthal? Like, he didn't take Carol's name <laughs> no. when they got married? <laughs> no. No, every once in a while we we um, think about Rose and Fisk or Fiskenthal, but no. Fiskenthal. We, we have our own separate names. Okay. Yes. All righty. Well, if that is the case, then I guess we've uh, we've expunged all we can possibly expunge on tonight's broadcast. It's a good show. It was a good show. And now uh, Jack will not be here next week. I'll see you in two weeks. Yeah, but Carol and I will be back next week. And um, you guys should start a pool to see if I drown or not. <laughs> Jack's going oh. to first descent. If, they, if, 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 if there's any like, YouTube footage of a, an upside-down kayak being pulled out of the river. Oh, God. You're terrible. Yeah, hey. I'm, I'm not superstitious, but I had one of those, Oi, say, don't say that, as it just as it came out of your mouth. Got it like the toy, toy, toy coming out of You know what I'm going to do? <laughs> I'm going to uh, get a tinfoil hat and wear that out on the river so that people can see me reflected in the sun. Okay, there we go. Did you know that there's a band called Tin Hat Trio? I did not. Now I do. 
Well, you got to listen to them after all this tin hat talking. Tin hat trio. <laughs> Look them up. All righty. Well, you guys have a wonderful week. Jack, have a good two weeks. And, Thank you. Um, all right, and uh, now it's time for our closing sequence. Excellent. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, Internet. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, folks, that's tonight's show. I hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our guests, Jimmy Reno, Shannon Fisk, Dr. Janet Gray, our live studio audience, Jacqueline Zalat, and her mother, Stacy. Next week's show, The Art of Survivorship, with Jesse Herskowitz, young adult survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, rap artist, songwriter, contributing musician to the I2I Benefit CD Volume 2, Christina Felice, young adult survivor of breast cancer, artist, photographer of Christina Felice Photography, and returning champion Seth Eisen, young adult survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma, visual artist, former educator, and Eisen Art. Sure to be one hell of a show, same bad time, same bad channel. Folks, if you have missed any of our previous broadcasts, check out the archive at stupidcancershow.com or subscribe to our podcast at itunes.i2y.com. And if you don't already have Carol Rosenthal's book, Everything Changes, The Insider's Guide to Cancer in Your 20s and 30s, it is available wherever books are sold. Remember, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. We'll see you all back here, my friends, live from the chemo deck, Jack Bufard, Carol Rosenthal, Captain Stewie and I wish you all a great evening. Go to bed, Shannon. Fogger out.